comparing to other what other people have told me about that I got a decent education. A curiosity question, Brooke. So after you have a lecture on slavery, on segregation, on civil rights, did you and your friends ever leave the classroom and just start to talk about some of the things that you just learned, or were you just in too much of a rush to get to biology and English and everything else? I honestly don't feel like my friends and I had conversations about these topics until probably like later in high school, going into college. I think, at least for me, school is always like, got to do school, so I'm going to learn this. It was like, I don't think I ever realized that history could be a discussion, that like things could be discussed and like more into detail and how we felt about it personally. I thought I just always took it as facts. Uh, Brooke, that was that was an epiphany, uh, for, I think, for all of us. Uh, while you were talking, uh, Nicole was just nodding her head, her head uh, the whole time. Did you all have these kind of discussions? Um, I think the reason why I was agreeing with uh, Brooke be, um, is because she's right. I remember just being told the facts, just being lectured to, just being told this is what it is. It wasn't a discussion. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Dr. Nelson, good to see you again. How are things going with you? Things are going great. I'm so excited about today's courageous conversation because I'm actually nervous. We have some very special guests that put an inordinate amount of pressure, at least on me, I don't know about you, joining us today to celebrate some of the courageous conversations of being a parent in anticipation of Father's Day. I'd like to welcome my daughter, uh, soon to be Dr. Brooke Weinstein. Hi. <laughs> And I'd like to welcome my daughter, Nicole Nelson, who is also the editor of our podcast. I too am under a lot of pressure because I have no idea what either one of these young ladies is gonna say, uh, but I, I'm looking forward to seeing what the generational differences are regarding some of the issues we have addressed in our podcast. So welcome, Brooke, Nicole, thank you for joining us. Awesome. Thank you for having us. You're talking about all this pressure that's on you guys. You can only imagine how much pressure it is for us yes, thanks. being here as I well. So thank you for having us. We're all cooking along. So where do we want to start? I, mean, I know, Nicole, you've obviously listened to our podcast. I know Brooke has listened to them as well. Were there any things that you've listened to or heard that you didn't know about either Phil or myself? For me, I've heard a lot of different stories from your podcast. The Ebony um, episode where my dad was going around selling Ebony magazines as Ebony. Uh, that was one I had never well, heard of before. Well, cool to hear about Brooke, were there any how my you? dad grew up and his parents, kind of just like comparing his parents to my parents, which is him. Um, but I also just really respected Dr. Nelson when he just straight up told my dad was like, why are you coming to me for help? <laughs> yeah, Phil hasn't exactly filtered his um, <laughs> feelings about different things. So 
<laughs> so you all have heard us discuss a number of really difficult issues uh, and navigate through those issues from our different perspectives. And we've talked about things like race and gender issues and social justice, et cetera. Brooke, let me, let me ask you, I, I know you are a student in, in veterinary medicine and you, you're just starting your, your clinical training, et cetera. But aside from veterinary medicine, what's really important to you? Ooh, I'm trying to find the correct words to say this because this has kind of been something I'm dealing with actually recently, but just like, I don't know, a sense of humility and respect towards everyone equally. Like, I think I get my respect of other people through like shared moral values and just how they treat others and how they view themselves. Because if you don't respect your peers and you can't, you can't figure out a way to work with them or like communicate with them, then society doesn't work. Um, and I think that's a huge problem with diversity and inclusion is people don't know how to com communicate and work with each other. And I think I've, as the years go on, I really realize how important that is. Is this a general consensus among your peers that we don't communicate with each other very well? I honestly don't know. <laughs> um, okay. I think it differs per person, but mm. I don't think I've actually talked about this specifically with anyone. Why not? I don't know. I think it's kind of like a, you argue about something or you just don't mention something because you don't want to, you just don't want to know what the other person thinks. Welcome to Courageous Conversations. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole, same question. What's really important to you right now uh, for, for the audience? Nicole is a graphics editor, a writer, does a lot of uh, social media work. Uh, right now, she is the director of a uh, civic center that's starting up in a small town in Louisiana. But aside from that, what are the issues of importance to you right now? For me, I feel what's most important is the education of our children. I have two kids and, and what I mean by education for them, of course we have our public schools and um, beyond, but my high school daughter came to me, she just graduated, congratulations to her. Uh, my high school daughter came up to me and she said, you know, mom, they're not teaching me how to do my taxes. They're not teaching me real world things that I need to know outside of school. And I feel like that the miseducation is also what's kind of holding our society back. The fact that we're not teaching our children what they need outside Peter, did, of did you, graduation. Did you learn how to do your taxes in school? Well, uh, I don't know whether it's good news or bad news that my dad was a CPA, but no, I didn't learn how to do taxes. I didn't need, I thought taxes was a state. <laughs> So, no, I, I really didn't understand about taxes, but I think in the 40 years between the time I was in high school and the time Nicole's daughter graduated in high school, an understanding of business, an understanding of law, an understanding of the global, the globalness of the business is a much different world. I mean, we are so connected in everything and everything is headlined these days that, um, you know, what Nicole called miseducation, I would actually call diseducation, which is a lack of education on the practical mm -hmm. aspects of things. I, I think we are still being taught in a 
20th century mindset of didactic, you got to read this, you got to study this, but it's not helping create um, and, and open up new and different opportunities that we have in the, in the 21st century. So I think it's diseducation. And one more thing, I think the amount of information that has been gathered in the 40 years since you and I were in high school, Phil, is so great that it's very difficult to filter out what's important. You know, they're getting a fire hose of information when they really need drip irrigation. It's kind of interesting. I recently had this conversation with someone basically talking about how higher education just isn't made for everyone. Like the amount of people, like, I don't even remember who I was talking to, but between the two of us that we knew who went to college, graduated college and didn't want to do anything with their degree, like went to cosmetology school or like did some trade work and they're like, college is pointless. I mean, I know college is completely different than like elementary school and high school. I guess the education we're taught isn't really meant for everyone because everyone learns so differently. Drip drip irrigation education would be kind of (laughs) nice. This has already become a difficult conversation for me as an educator because you all are dissing my uh, my profession, but it's not as if I didn't, I wasn't aware of our uh, deficiencies. You actually are validating some of the things that we that we did when we established our new college for veterinary medicine, because we were addressing just that, that the practicality of education seems to be lost. And what my granddaughter was, was essentially telling uh, her mother was, was that I'm not quite sure that they understand what I really need to know in order to survive. We, we've been following a recipe that worked in the 20s or the 30s, and it's so indoctrinated in our education that we don't change. I, I love the fact that Cole started with a high school graduate that said, I'm not learning what I, what I need to know. And then Peter went straight to higher ed, you know, and Brooke said the same thing. Higher ed is not what I need. And I totally agree with you, Brooke. I, I can't tell you how many people that I have mentored. There, there's one individual that I mentored in Mississippi in particular that had an opportunity, he had some land and parents had had plans on putting a service station and a uh, stop and go on that land. And he came to school and, and majored in business so that he could run that service station. And I kept thinking, why would you do that? Why would you go to school to do that? I mean, the best way to learn how to do it is to, is to be on the property with the architect or whoever's going to build that service station and learn by doing. And nobody, and, and there is no course that's going to teach you how to order twinkle, Twinkies and potato chips uh, and make a profit. Yeah, that's exactly. we're pushed. You know, that's and so I, I have to have a business degree before I can run a business. This is also the same concept that mm-hmm. demotes cosmetology as a viable trade, which, by the way, is something my granddaughter wants to do. Yeah. We had this conversation with my daughter about whether or not she wanted to go on to higher education or take on a trade. And my cousin, who's in business, we spoke with him beforehand. By the way, he did also graduate with a business degree. 
But he also stated, you know, you don't have to go to business school in order to create your own business. And Akela's plan is to do a trade because trade services are just as needed as other high education services as well, but that's not being pushed, but she's good in it. So we had, we sat down, we had the conversation. It's like, you know, Kayla, you don't have to go to college as long as you're doing a trade and you're the best in this trade. And what we can do is take this opportunity and you can create a business out of it. You can own the salon and then have people come in to your salon and rent out to them. So I think this one-way approach of school, you have to go to college. I know this is a, a, a different subject, but it's also one that viable for me as well. And that's being feeling like we're forced to only go one direction. From the perspective of so audience, I want to say that well. there's a 20-year difference between uh, Brooke and Nicole. And a 20-year difference between Phil and I. <laughs> and a 40-year difference between <laughs> we've covered all um, Peter and I and Brooke and Nicole. So I, I just want to address one thing, Phil. You were talking about this student at Mississippi State and the, um, the service station, et cetera. And uh, here I am teaching the business and finance class to veterinarians about how they could be better served in as a business owner with understanding some business and finance so that they could do a much better job of running their business. So I don't disagree that sometimes the school of hard knocks is the best way to learn, but I do think having a little bit more foundationally accounting, law, human resources, marketing can help make that practice a little bit more successful. So you know, as Nicole talks to her daughter about being a cosmetologist, I'm hoping that if she does open her own location, that she will have an understanding of the business aspects of cosmetology, because it's not just the, the technical work, it's the business of running that tech, it's the business of doing that technical work that actually leads to the ultimate profitability. So that's my protecting my turf from that standpoint. Yeah, I appreciate your protection of your turf, although I want to attack it again. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. First of all, I'm glad you asserted because I, I was not trying to say that the business degree is not necessary. Uh, and I was not trying to say that learning business uh, as a discipline is not important. What you're teaching our students in veterinary medicine is an important part of veterinary medicine, particularly for, uh, for ownership. Uh, but the problem is, is that we end up, we have created these disciplines and all of a sudden people are intimidated to go into a, a, a particular field unless they get a degree in it. And I think what Nicole was trying to say, there are two approaches here. And adult learning uh, allows you, you know, to learn as you go as well. The United States is very fortunate in that we've created a system that allows our children to focus on learning for almost 20 years of their life, you know, and we protect them before they get out into the real world. But that's also a, a detriment because if that's all they do for 20 years, they're not prepared for the real world, you know, when, when they get out. And we've, and, and we've got to figure out how to do it better. For number one, students aren't as disappointed uh, as Brooke suggested, you know, you get a degree and then you don't use it. 
And, and so you feel like you've wasted four years. In the European system, students get to choose to be a veterinarian, must choose to be a veterinarian after high school. And they, they actually get into vet school after high school. And a larger number of them choose not to use their veterinary degree because they realize after they get, after they graduate, they don't like it. That's just a, an example of how we can create these ruts of education that don't work. But Nicole's comment essentially says, it's not just higher education that's the problem. We actually create these ruts even in elementary and, and secondary education. And I'm not trying to say that you don't need to learn math. You know, you don't need to learn your ABCs. You know, there are certain things we're not going to get rid of. But at some point, education should be practical. I, I concur 100%. Now, I want to transition. You Good. used the term protect. That led me to think of Uvalde and students and the challenges of being a parent these days in, of, of kids in elementary school and high school and everything else. And even the education that Brooke had and Nicole had in high school in discussing controversial or challenging topics. So let's, let's kind of change directions from education for education and education of some of the social issues and the challenging issues. And, and uh, you know, Brooke, I, I don't believe at any time when you were in, in elementary, middle school or high school that you had a lockdown uh, due to an active shooter or maybe you had a lockdown due to an earthquake. But, um, you know, when you start to see these things in the news, um, what do you start to think? I mean, has, have you had any experiences at Oregon State? Um, do you recall any experiences that, that made you nervous about going to school? Actually, one time in elementary school, um, I think it was like school is ending and they were like, there is a person with a gun in a nearby neighborhood. So we did have a lockdown, um, but he wasn't at our school. And I, I don't know if I had a cell phone yet. So I don't know if I was in contact with you guys yet. But that was like a one-off. I don't recall, I guess, being scared to go to school because fear of dying, per se. I personally have not. Nicole? You now yourself, you can talk about yourself, but you can also talk as a parent now of kids who are in the school system. And, you know, every time they go off to class, what do you start to think about? Well, you know, I can actually talk. You're right. I could talk from myself and from my parental standpoint as well. But I do remember even being in high school and we had a shooting in Mississippi. It wasn't at our school, but it was at a school in Mississippi. And after that, we were all told that we needed to, from that point forward, buy clear backpacks. And then at one point, I think probably for a week, we um, had the, um, the detectors, the metal detectors, because you know they didn't want any copycats. Um, so I do remember that. And I do remember, I guess that was a way for them to make us feel more secure, but to be honest, I did not feel more secure once the seeing the metal detectors and then all of a sudden the responsibility was being placed on us in a way because I just can't remember thinking I could if I really wanted to bring something I could hide it under here you know once the metal detectors were taken away because they were just using the wands for a week and so after that is like 
anything could happen. From the standpoint of my daughter, what I didn't have in school were those lockdown drills. And, you know, she had, Brooke, I don't know if you had those. Did you have the drills? Right. Yeah. mm -hmm. Again, the responsibility is being placed on our children to kind of remind you like the duck and cover um, back in the day is being placed on them. And that part was kind of scary to me because I don't know how beneficial it is for them to have these drills to run and hide. And if we look at the shooting in Texas, I'm sure all those kids were hiding. And unfortunately, it still occurred. So how much is this really working for our children? So I'm, I'm hearing concern about the, the robbing of childhood, if you will, the fact that you have to deal with threats and how we're dealing with threats. And at the same time, the effectiveness of providing safety for our children. And those are kind of separate issues here that I don't think we are addressing appropriately or, effe- or effectively in the national discussion. The gun issue is the gun issue. So it's a Second Amendment issue. And all of a sudden, we lose sight of all of those things. This is a uniquely American dilemma. Yes, it is. Mass shooting. And for anybody to sit there and say that it has nothing to do with the number of guns that are available are blind. And the number of guns that are out that are in our country is a direct consequence of our rabbit commitment to capitalism. And, and there's no other way to say it. We're making money on selling guns. And the fact that we see the potential limitation of selling guns a- as a threat to capitalism is the basic reason why we won't take care of our children. But be that as it may, I find it interesting that on the one hand, no, no one likes the idea of having their childhood or anyone's childhood robbed. I love the duck and cover analogy that you used, uh, Nicole. And I do remember the fear that I felt having those drills. And I, and, and I never made the connection between the duck and cover and the lockdown drills before. But every child, every generation has had some kind of threat that they've had to go through. And one may argue, but I think we did okay despite that. You know, there's going to be threats anyway, and that's part of growing up, you know, uh, learning how to deal with those threats. What's disappointing, however, is that we still haven't figured out how to teach our children that this is how society navigates those threats. I'm embarrassed that our children have to see what we're doing on the gun issue and how we're how we're handling the gun issue. And that gun issue right now is a peculiar issue for the United States, but it's so much similar to the nuclear issue that caused duck and cover. It's still about armaments and it's still about our propensity for violence. Yeah, I would argue that um, topics like the gun issue are not even on the social studies, civics, even if you have civics anymore, education for elementary school and through high school. And so I want to turn to Nicole for just a minute and say, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you went to um, 
your primary education and your high school education in Mississippi? High school education, yes, was in Mississippi. Primary education, we were moving back and forth between Alabama and North Carolina, but still primarily in the South. Okay, so let's talk about some other social concepts that should be part of the education process. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about discussions on racism, slavery, terrorism, because 9-11 was 20 some odd years ago. How much, how, how did you feel your education was on some of the social issues while you were in school in the South? And I'm, I'm gonna ask Brooke to answer the same question as relative to her education in, in the far West in California? Well, I think that's a good question. For me, the 9-11, I actually had just graduated when 9-11 happened. We were actually moving out here during that point. So I can't speak on that. I do remember we did learn about the Holocaust and I only remember being taught about slavery and racism primarily during February. It was always part of Black History Month for the most part. I'm sure if I can remember correctly, there was like a chapter on slavery, but because I lived in the South, whatever I didn't get from school, I was always taught from my father. So I always knew that there was black and white, um, that he was raised in a segregated part of Mississippi. But as far as it being taught in school, I just remember really a small portion on slavery and then it was always Martin Luther King. What was the demographics of your classroom? Was it primarily black, primarily white, about equal amounts? I mean, what, what, did, your what did your cohorts look like? Well, I can't say luckily, because I went to public school in the South, uh, my cohort was actually more 50, 50, 45, um, 55 for the most part. Wait, did I do those numbers right? You got it, you got okay, it. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so I was, we were taught, I think that's the reason why we were taught more is because of that. And the same for my, um, faculty members, I would probably say the same. I probably had a good amount of black teachers, even though for that standpoint, we probably had 70% white teachers and 30% black. We also had a private school in Starkville, Mississippi. And I was friends with some of those private school students. It was an all white school. And I do remember conversations with them where they would tell me I was their only black friend and they were not being taught. They were not being taught anything about racism, slavery, any of that. As a matter of fact, I, I remember specifically them trying to come to me and kind of ask me questions. Not saying that I was the only black person they were friends with, but primarily letting me know I was the only black person that they were friends with and trying to kind of get the tea of the things that they were not being taught in school. So Brooke, you were brought up in a pretty very different environment. What kind of education and discussions did you have in, in your elementary and high school career regarding some of the historical and controversial issues, racism, slavery, um, terrorism, et cetera. Do you recall? I think so. My The demographics of my school, my elementary school and high schools were diverse in the sense of a lot of different Asian backgrounds, um, very small black community. But I guess when I think about my education, I 
kind of like a comparison to what I know other people learned in their education because I very strongly remember learning about slavery, segregation, just like basically the whole history of the African slave trade and then the emancipation of slavery and the segregation and just like I do really remember learning the whole process of how we got to like where we are today kind of thing. Was it a discussion? Probably not. I think it was kind of like, here is your lecture and this is what happened. And then again, yeah, Martin Luther King Day was a big holiday, you know, watched some Martin Luther King documentary or cartoon, did some Martin Luther King artwork, had a dream about something. That was kind of, yeah, every year we did that. Um, so like, I do think it was hit pretty well for, I guess, the small black population that we did have. You talk about 9-11. 9-11 came up in the history book. I remember talking much more about terrorism, just more like it happened. But moving to Oregon, learned that Oregon was a headquarter for the KKK. Talking to my friends about their education growing up, one of my friends didn't learn about the NAACP. That was interesting. So I was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, so like, I guess in the grand scheme of things, it sounded like my education did encompass more history of slavery and segregation than others. But again, I don't think it was really a discussion. And like, even, I guess, starting two years ago, when Black Lives Matters became a lot bigger of a thing, there was all these new facts that came out more like the medical and science stuff. That's, I mean, at least what I've heard, medical and science in the medical and science fields about like racism and testing and research and all that. Like we never learned about that. So there obviously was a big gap in our education and what they did tell us about. But I guess on the comparative grand scheme of things, it seemed like I learned a lot. Because even with the Holocaust too, I always thought I knew a lot about the Holocaust. Again, I don't know if that's being from a Jewish family, going to temple, going to a bunch of Holocaust museums, because that's what Jewish families do. Um, but <laughs> again, like I've had other friends be like, they taught us nothing about the Holocaust. It was so important to like our religion and like our like our community. And I don't know. I guess I felt like again comparing to other what other people have told me about that I got a decent education. A curiosity question, Brooke. So after you have a lecture on slavery, on segregation, on civil rights, did you and your friends ever leave the classroom and just start to talk about some of the things that you just learned, or were you just in too much of a rush to get to biology and English and everything else? Um, I honestly don't feel like my friends and I had conversations about these topics until probably like later in high school, going into college. I think, at least for me, school is always like, gotta do school so I'm gonna learn this it was like I don't think I ever realized that history could be a discussion that like things could be discussed and like more into detail and how we felt about it personally I thought I just always took it as facts and that this was stuff that happened so I, I personally don't remember conversations um, after learning about these topics uh, Brooke that was that was an epiphany uh, for, I think for all of us uh, while you were talking, uh, Nicole was just nodding her head, her head uh, the whole time. So, Nicole, I I have a, um, a a a very stark question to ask both of you. But before I do that, you want to respond to what uh, Brooke just said. After going to these classes, or after having February Month, uh, Black History Month, etc. Even among when you were in school, did you all have these kind of discussions 
Um, I think the reason why I was agreeing with Brooke um, is because she's right. I remember just being told the facts, just being lectured to, just being told this is what it is. It wasn't a discussion. And you go off and, you know, you just take it as fact. So I'm with Brooke. I don't, there weren't any discussions after school um, outside of this, the discussions that we had at home when it came to racism, socialism, even the Holocaust. You know, I remember watching Steven Spielberg's uh, movie, The Black and White, where it was just a little red dress. And then Anne Frank, we rem- I remember reading that book. But outside of that, there was no discussion. You know, I don't even think we had discussions at home about these issues, did we, Brooke? We, you know, you, you came home, you did your homework, you went to practice, whatever the case may be. I, I mean, I don't even think we had many discussions on the Holocaust at home. It's just, it was, again, it was a focus on task and not a focus on the impact of, of the information that was there. Do you, do you recall any dinners that we sat around and tried to solve the world's problems? No, but I could throw this question back at you. Did you find these topics to be of discussion or did you just also find them as bad? Well, when I was going to school, the teachings were very didactic from, lec- from textbooks. Now, fortunately, going to school in North, we actually did get information about the Civil War and the fact that it was a war over slavery, not over states' rights. And um, the, the truth of what was going on or, or the truth that they wanted to share with us. But no, I, I don't believe we had discussions. Now, you were very young when you met my mom, but um, you met my dad. And you know that uh, having uh, courageous conversations wasn't something he was afraid of. So we would have discussions at dinner on different issues. And and back when I was growing up, it was more about the Vietnam War and Watergate and some of the other things that happened in the the 60s and 70s. We did talk about civil rights. We did talk about Martin Luther King, and especially in the late 60s. Um, But I don't think we had, you know, a debate about right or wrong. We talked about that what happened in in the 17, 1800s was wrong. There wasn't a discussion of right or wrong. It was just so, wrong. Peter. I, I think what Brooke is asking is, do you remember having these discussions as a father? No, we didn't. I don't recall having these discussions when they were in elementary school. I think we had some more discussions when they got into high school and we started to look at classwork and everything else. But some of the more timely things that were, you know, right around nine eleven, both you and Brianna were relatively young. I'm sure you remembered my turning off the TV and not allowing you to watch some of the things that were going on from that standpoint. But I don't recall us having these conversations either. I I think um, I was not always aware of what your classwork was. So heck, I I remember building a mission, but I don't remember talking about, you know, the Civil War. I don't remember talking about the Vietnam War as part of your education. So again, it goes back to history being a discussion. Actually, history is, is, is a recording of life, and it's where we learn our lessons from. And Nicole can correct me or not, but I think the difference in our household was that we were living through history, and it was always a discussion in our, in our household. We encouraged our children to, to participate to a point. Part of their education was first to learn that they were individuals and human beings, that were equal to anybody else. We had to, indoctr- nobody else was going to indoctrinate our children that way. 
responsibility to do that because we couldn't depend on society to do that. But but at the same time, we had to do it in a way that uh, taught humility, as Brooke mentioned earlier. We did not want our children to, to develop a superiority complex, which is kind of difficult in the segregated South to begin with. But but it was it's it's the balance of the attitude. So we had these kind of discussions all the time in our culture uh, in trying to develop the persona. But in retrospect, I realized that was also our attempt to create good citizens, to let them know that this is what's wrong with our society. And this is how you counter that. And so we did have those discussions, but but it was because we had to. We were forced to, and it was a safe haven for us to have those kind of conversations. But this is revelatory to me to realize that it's not just a political problem that we don't talk to each other. We don't talk to each other even in our families, apparently, you know, about these kinds of things. And this courageous conversation probably should, should and probably does not start across the fence as Peter and I were envisioning. It starts across the dinner table and in the kitchen and with our children in order to reestablish the community and the communal ideologies that we want to establish. Thank Nationwide again for putting up with us and supporting our conversations in whatever direction they go. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.